Equanimity is emotional stability. You try to develop, it's based on a desire. You want to be able to step outside of the emotions that would get in the way of your path and not engaging in any present moment fabrications or karma that would continue them. It provides support both for your, your persistence in the path and in your endurance. As I said earlier, it differs from endurance as it deals more with your emotional stability inside, whereas endurance is more with your external response to events. Equanimity is both a means to the goal and it is associated with the goal, but it is not the goal itself. Remember, nirvana is not the ultimate equanimity, it's the, it's the ultimate happiness. We develop equanimity as a way of fortifying ourselves in the path. And then once that ultimate happiness has been found, there's another level of equanimity. That comes when you look at all the other things that could have gotten you stirred up and no longer stir you up because you've found the ultimate happiness. These other things cannot affect you. When we look at equanimity and with regard to the issues of karma, there are three big issues surrounding it. The first is how to deal with past bygones. You know, there are two basic, basically two areas where you have to think about past bygones. One is grief over loss, and the other is remorse or regret over past mistakes that you have made. There are many passages in the canon where the Buddha is counseling people who have suffered from loss of family members. In the case of the Buddha talking to King Vasanity when Vasanity's favorite queen had died. The word came to the king right as he was in conversation with the Buddha. The king broke down, started crying. And the Buddha's way of comforting him was, was to basically say, when have you ever known anyone who was born who did not die? In other words, think of the universality of the fact of death. This is not being focused on you. It's something that happens to all living beings. Similarly, with the passages in Sanyutta 15, where the Buddha is talking about, thinking about, there's no one you could meet in this world that had not been your mother or your father or your sister or your brother or your, your son or your daughter. You start thinking about all the people who lost throughout the past, and it's just a huge number of people. And the funny thing is, instead of becoming overwhelming and adding to your more grief, it actually pulls you out of your own personal grief and helps to depersonalize it, which is one of the main ways of dealing with difficult situations. Once it's depersonalized, then you can pull back from it. And you actually replace the grief with compassion, realizing all living beings have to suffer from this. So it lifts you out of your own personal story, which is often the sharpest part of the grief, your own personal loss. And you realize that this is part of the human condition, part of the condition of all living beings. Similarly, in his the Buddha's advice to Patajara and Ubiri, both of whom had lost their, cho- their children. In the case of Patajara, she had lost her son. She was crying there in the, in the, in the eternal ground. And he comes and he sees her and he says, you don't know the path of his coming or going, that being was come from where? When you lament as my son. When you know the path of his coming or going, you don't grieve after him, for that is the nature of beings. Unasked, he came from there. Without permission, he went from here. Coming from where? having stayed a few days. And coming one way from here, he goes yet another from there. Dying in the human form, he'll go wandering on. As he came, so he's gone. So what is there to lament? In other words, you, this creature that you, know you have taken on as your son, you don't know where he came from. You don't know where he's going. You're just like two ships that have passed in the night. Helps pull you out of the, some of the personal sharpness of the grief. 
for Uberde, Councillor. Jiva, my daughter, you cry in the West. Come to your senses, Uberde. Eight, 84,000 all named Jiva have been buried in that charnel ground. For which of them do you grieve? Again, you see that this is a part of the human condition. And as you take the personal sense of loss out of it, that takes a lot of the sting. There's a passage where Venerable Sarabut is talking about how he's reflecting one day, is there any, any change in the world that would cause him grief? And he realized there was none. Ananda was sitting nearby, was struck, struck by that. And he said, well, wait a what if something happened to the Buddha? And Sarabhuta says, so I would reflect that it's a sad thing that such a great being who's been so helpful to the world would pass away, but that's the nature of living beings. And Ananda makes an interesting comment. He says, that shows that your mind is totally free of conceit. Your conceit doesn't mean overweighting pride. It means the sense of I am. From often that, that's the main issue in the grief is your own personal sense of, of a part of you has been taken away. And we are, when you learn how not to identify with that, then there's, there's no room for grief. So here, the Buddha is not forcing you not to grieve at all. In fact, he counsels that as long as you feel that something is accomplished by eulogies, remembering the past good deeds of that person who's passed away. You want to honor that person, go ahead. And giving express to your own sense of loss, go ahead. But when you begin to feel that it's getting self-indulgent, it's beginning to interfere with the duties of your life, that's when you have to realize, okay, it's time to move on. So that's one area in which the Buddha counsels equanimity over things that are caused by past karma. In this case, the fact that we're all born one once we made that choice to be reborn, this is what's inevitably going to happen. The second thing that we has developed equanimity for related to past karma is regret over past mistakes. It basically says if you beat yourself up with remorse, it's not really going to undo the mistake you made. It's not going to really actually help you in the future. And what you have to do is recognize that yes, it was a mistake, and then you resolve not to repeat it again. And then you develop all four of the Brahma-Viharas, goodwill for yourself, goodwill for all beings. Goodwill for, for all beings is to help you motivate, be motivated not to harm anybody. Goodwill for yourself is so you don't come down too heavily on yourself for the mistakes you made. You, said, you realize, again, all beings have made mistakes. This, this is what is part of being a creature in time. You look back on mistakes and you can't go back and undo them. But you can learn from them. That's the best thing to be, to be hoped for. As for equanimity, again, realizing that as beings, I think it was Kierkegaard who said, we live forward, but understand backward. We're making decisions that will have an impact in the future, but we don't know the future. All we know is the past. Oftentimes the past is not necessarily the best guide to what it's best to do right now. So it's only natural that we're going to be making mistakes. The best that can be asked for us is that we recognize the mistakes. We don't deny them. And then we resolve not to repeat them. And then hold on to that resolve by developing the four Brahmaviharas. A second issue dealing with equanimity and its relationship to karma is the karmic results of adopting equanimity. There are some types of equanimity that are skillful to develop and others that are not. The type not to be developed is equanimity, at least to laziness or defeatism. The type of equanimity that should be developed is equanimity that allows you to accept setbacks and not get knocked out by them. Um, and John Foote made a distinction between, between two types of equanimity, one that he would call small-hearted or depressive equanimity, 
this is it. And then we can say, well, the world is just, it's just a miserable place. I'm a miserable person, but we can't expect anything better than it is. So we just might as well learn how to accept it and be okay with that. And that's very small and confining and depressive, basically. They did a study years back in Sri Lanka, people who were reported to be you know, very, very much into the Dharma. And they gave them psychological tests, and they came away from the result that you know, people who really into the Dharma tend to be depressed. And, and that was because the attitude was, okay, just learn how to accept everything is in constant, stressful, not self. There's nothing much you can do about it, so you might as well give up. That is depression, which is not what the Buddha taught. Large-hearted equanimity, in John Fung's term, is the equanimity that comes when you have found a really deep happiness inside. It has a much more expansive sense, which is why it's called, he called it large-hearted. And then you can be equanimous about the events of the world because you have something of value inside that is not touched by them. That's the kind of equanimity we're trying to develop. As for John Chow, you've probably heard the story. It bears repeating. John Storm went to the monastery there in Wopatnomapong. And the day after the storm, he went through the monastery and was checking out what damage had been done. He came across one hut where half the roof had been blown off the hut. And a monk was sitting and meditating inside the hut. And so John Chai asked him, why aren't you fixing the roof? And the monk said, I'm practicing equanimity. And then John Chai said, that's the equanimity of a water buffalo. <laughs> You're a human being. Fix the roof. In other words, water buffaloes, their equanimity is basically dumb. You know, they're in a situation where they can't do much about anything, and so they just have to put up with it. But we're human beings, and if there are areas where we can make a difference, we go ahead and do that. There's another story associated with the John Cha and the issue of equanimity. They tell the story, this is a story that he told about the time when he was invited into the palace by the king, he and two other Ajans, for a meal. And it happened to be at a time when there was a, some strife between the students, university students in Bangkok and the military. And both sides were calling on the king to side bid them. And the king was at a loss as to what to do. So he asked the Ajans. John Cha happened to be the, the junior of the three teachers there. So he waited to the last. The first two teachers counseled equanimity. And then when it came to John Cha's turn, he said, well, yes, you do have to have equanimity, but it has to be equanimity with discernment. In other words, you don't just sit there and do nothing or accept things. You have to figure out, okay, what things do I have to accept and what things do I not have to accept? You make that distinction. And here we have to remember that equanimity is never taught alone. It's always combined with other good qualities. If you just pursue equanimity on, on its own, it can lead to problems, as the Buddha pointed out. Usually it's the part of the end of lessons in the Brahma Baharas or the, or the practice for awakening which is sometimes makes it sound as if it's the higher than the other members of the list and so it's found by overcoming the others, but that's not the case. It must be mixed with the others at the right time and the right place to be skillful. In terms of the Brahma Paharas, you have to know when to express goodwill, how to express it best. Other times when you realize, okay, there's nothing much that can be done in this situation. I should develop equanimity for it so I can focus my goodwill in areas where I can be of help. In terms of the factors for awakening, the Buddha points out that of the factors for awakening, there are some that are energizing, such as analysis of qualities, persistence, rapture. And there are others that are calming. Calm, concentration, equanimity. And you have to look at the state of your mind to see which 
which are those sets you really need. The, when the mind is already very, very common, the bridging on sleepiness, you do not emphasize the calming factors. You emphasize the more active ones. You save the calming ones for times when the mind is too hyperactive. So you can bring it into a state of balance. When we think of equanimity being mixed with other qualities, you might think of the equanimity of a doctor. The doctor has goodwill for his, his or her patients, wants them to be cured. But at the same time, we'll run into symptoms that the, that the doctor realizes cannot be treated. So instead of getting upset about the things that cannot be treated, the doctor will focus on the things that can be treated. You know, things cannot be treated, but at the very least, you know, make sure the patient is not too much pain. So this is equanimity combined with compassion. So think of a doctor as you think about that combination. There's also the equanimity of a soldier. This would be equanimity as is found in the list of the perfections, which goes together with persistence and endurance and determination. In other words, you have equanimity in the face of setbacks, but you don't let them get you down. You continue to look for new ways in which to come out victorious. There's a story that's told in, in French history. There was a time when um, Napoleon's chief foreign minister, his name was Talleyrand, um, was suspected by Napoleon of plotting against him. And so Napoleon calls Talleyrand into, in, into his meeting room together with all of his other ministers and berates him for an hour, yelling at him for being traitorous. And Talleyrand throughout the whole thing kept a poker face, did not respond one way or another. And this infuriated Napoleon even more and started yelling at him even more. And then he realized he was not going to be able to conquer Talleyrand's poker face as so he finally gave up. And Talleyrand told his friends afterwards that, you know, he fully expected he was going to be imprisoned for just being suspected of having plotted against Napoleon. And as Napoleon was yelling at him, he was sitting there thinking about how he was going to get out of prison. So instead of letting a setback get him down, he was thinking, okay, what's the next step in this game? So instead of letting his emotions run, run wild and make him do something really foolish, he kept his emotions under control and was able to come out unscathed. So think of the equanimity of a soldier as one of the ideal forms of equanimity. It's combined with the desire to be persistent and in order to be, in order to have endurance, not get knocked off by events, but continue to have hope for victory someplace down the line. So in other words, there are times when equanimity should be developed and times when it shouldn't. We'll look a little bit more into this and we'll go into equanimity as its, in its role in meditation. This relates to the fact that there are levels of equanimity to, to be developed. And the Buddha gives two lists. One is everyday equanimity. And that covers basically your desire to remain calm and unruffled in the face of good or bad sights, sounds, smells, tastes, tactile sensations. And this covers equanimity, not only in terms of just being equanimous as you go through the day, but also all the way up through the first three jhanas. The second level of equanimity is the fourth jhana. The equanimity that comes when you've got the mind really, really still. And then finally, the third level of equanimity is post-awakening. In other words, when the mind has totally been freed from passion, aversion, and delusion. And you reflect on the fact that your mind is freed from passion, aversion, and delusion. There's a strong sense of peace that, over, that comes over the mind. So you notice the first two types of equanimity are means on the path. 
And the third is a result of the goal. And it's good not to get these confused. The other list is what it started with, what the Buddha calls equanimity based on multiplicity. And in this case, it's your everyday equanimity plus the equanimity of all four jhanas. There's equanimity based on singleness, which is the equanimity of the formless states, states of infinitude of space, infinitude of consciousness, nothingness, and neither perception nor non-perception. And then there's finally the equanimity of what's called non-fashioning, which you do not create a sense of self around any of your attainments. Now, there's some practical issues that come from reflecting on these, these different lists of the different levels of equanimity. Remember that the equanimity that's taught in mindfulness practice, when you just accept things as they come and go, that's the lowest form of equanimity. And always keep that in mind. It's, it's, it's nothing anywhere near the goal. And don't try to use that to clone the equanimity of awakening. They're two very different things because they're based on different reasons. Equanimity on the everyday level and equanimity in mindfulness practice is based on the determination I am not going to react. You think of Talleyrand. Talleyrand was not much of a meditator, but he was able to just maintain control over his emotions. And this is the type of equanimity that we can develop, and it's useful equanimity to have, but it's not the whole story. When we look at equanimity in daily life, remember that its purpose is to let go of what cannot be changed or whose change cannot be stopped, to focus energy on what can be changed or whose change can be stopped, depending on what's, what would be skillful in a particular situation. So basically, it's coming down to an issue of priorities of where you want to focus your energy. You accept the duties. You accept the fact that certain things may be getting in the way of what you want. So that you don't focus on them. And so that you can focus on the duties in areas where you can make a difference. And this is where wise st storytelling, verbal and mental fabrication is essential. The stories you tell yourself about what is important in life will make a huge difference in your emotional response to certain things. If you focus on an issue that is relatively minor, but you get worked up about it, okay, it's going to waste your energy to work on things that are really of more importance. So you want to be really, really clear on where your priorities are as you go through life. Some people say this is you're, you're acting non-attached, you're a little bit too detached from things. It's more a case of learning how not to feed even when there's an emotional attachment or affection. In other words, there are people you love and sometimes bad things happen to them. It doesn't mean you don't care. It just means you look at what, what can be done in that situation if something is impossible to change. Okay, you don't get worked up about it. So you can focus on areas where you can be of help to that person for whom you have affection. In this case, it's you're practicing excuse me, selective equanimity. Knowing that you're going to focus being equanimous about some things, but not about others. As you get into meditation, this is where you try to develop a more universal type of equanimity. And that's basically a kind of a practice run so that if people, if issues come up regarding people that you really intensely do not like or people you really love, you're already prepared. 
you know, developed an attitude where you can set the mind back and say, even in the case of this person, there may come times when I have to develop equanimity around good or bad things that are happening to that person. Let's get a practice run. As for equanimity and meditation, in line with what I said about those seven factors for awakening, there are times when equanimity is unskillful. There's a passage in Anguttara 3, 103, where the Buddha compares being a meditator to being a, a goldsmith. There are times when the goldsmith has to put the gold into the fire. There are times when the goldsmith has to come out and just look at the gold. And there are other times when he has to blow on it in order to blow away the impurities. And the Buddha, as the Buddha said, if you just put it in the fire, it burns. If you just look at it, nothing happens. If you just blow on it without putting it in the fire, looking at it, you don't really, nothing, again, nothing happens. So putting it in the fire symbolizes emphasizing persistence in your practice. Looking at it symbolizes equanimity. And blowing on it symbolizes concentration. He says, if you just, just look at your mind, it's not going to get the mind into concentration. So that technique of just saying, oh, I'm just going to observe whatever comes up. I hope the mind settles down as a result of that. The Buddha said it's not going to work. You have to have a determination to really work on burning away the things that are going to get in the way of the mind settling down. Remember that the Buddha talks about the defilements of the mind respond in two different ways. There are those that respond when you simply look at them. And there are those that will not respond when you look at them. For example, there are times when lust comes up and you look at it and it seems like it just gets embarrassed and goes away. Which is why that technique of just looking at mind states will sometimes actually work. But there are other times when lust comes up, you look at it and it just looks right back. It's not going to be dissuading. And that's, and that, that's the case where the Buddha says you have to exercise the three types of fabrication. In other words, you look at how you're breathing around the issue. You look at the stories you're telling yourself about lust, about the object of the lust, about you as a person who is engaged in lust. And then you look at the perceptions that are ag aggravating the lust and ask yourself, can I replace them with other perceptions? And this is one of the reasons why there is that contemplation of the parts of the body. You can ask yourself, do you like the bones? Do you like the liver? Do you like the stomach? Exactly what is it that you're lusting for? And you begin to realize that the lust is not so much aimed at the other person, it's aimed at your perception of that person, and the perception can be full of lies. And when you're beginning to realize that you've been lying to yourself, that's when you, when you begin to get some detachment from it, see that well, maybe it's not as attractive a mind state as I thought it was. Now, the reason why equanimity is not the goal is that there can still be a, a sense of feeding or clinging to the equanimity. We need to get rid of that even last message of feeding and the need for all the perfections to work together. Again, in, in other words, have your discernment coming in and pointing out to the fact that even though the equanimous state of mind is very, very peaceful, still there, there's a sense of, there can be a sense of clinging there. Is that something we have to go beyond? You have to see where the clinging is be able to let go of that. Because as long as you're clinging to equanimity, even if just the mind is purely in the present moment and strong states of concentration, you're still in time. You're still in space. In other words, you're still subject to conditions. The present moment, unlike what some people say, is being in the present moment is not stepping out of time. You're actually in, in time as it's happening in, in real time. 
where the mind is focused on one thing, it either stays or it goes to one thing or another. It's only when the mind is free from having to stay or go, that's when the mind is actually free. It's totally free of attachments of any kind. Now, after the goal has been attained, as I said earlier, there's another level of equanimity, which is the result. You've reached the highest happiness, which is nirvana. When that is secure, you can look on the mind with equanimity, knowing that there's no more need for anything to be done. In other words, as the Buddha said, in the case of the Arahant, the task is done, the burden is laid down. There's nothing more to be done. So there's a huge sense of peace that comes as a result. And also there's a sense of security, knowing that you no longer have to feed on things. Our identity as living beings requires that we feed. That's in the, the catechism that the Buddha formulated for novices. First question is, what is one? Because it goes from what is one, what is two, what is three, what is four, up to what is ten? And some of the answers are to be expected. What is four? The four noble truths. What is five? The five clinging aggregates. What is six? The six sense spheres. The most interesting question, though, is what is one? And the answer is all beings subsist on food. Once you become a being, you have to feed on something in order to maintain that identity as a being. Which means, of course, that you're going to get into conflict. And the fact that you have a feed, you have to keep finding a food source means that you're insecure. If you ever looked at animals as they're eating, they're, they're not only eating, but they're also growling at anybody who comes nearby for fear that someone's going to take their food away. And there's always the question, well, where, where's my next step, source of food going to come from once this has been consumed? But when you get the mind to a state where it no longer needs to feed, no longer has the identity of being a being anymore. That's when you're truly independent. And when you reflect on that, that kind of equanimity is equanimity, as I said, is the result of attaining the goal. So when you think about equanimity, you have to think about the fact that there are many different levels. And there's equanimity that should be developed, equanimity that should not be developed. You have to learn how to get a sense of time and place. And realize that you cannot clone the equanimity of awakening. It's, it's some, this equanimity that's used on the path is one thing. The equanimity that comes as a result of the goal is something else. As for the right community that should be developed, again, you have to learn the right time and the right place for developing when to use your select, selective equanimity when to develop a more universal equanimity as part of your meditation practice to give yourself practice but so that when time comes when you have to have equanimity about people you deeply care about that pattern of thought will already be there in the mind and at the same time when you've developed the equanimity that allows you to maintain an emotional even keel in the face of events that means that whatever happens in the world you don't you're Practice does not get overturned by it. This is one of the big dangers of living in a world where, as we see all around us, things are top, topsy-turvy, things, a lot of institutions that we thought were very solid are, being, are looking pretty shaky. We have to realize that our happiness cannot depend on those things. We can't let ourselves get upset by any, any danger that comes to them. That doesn't mean that we don't care, simply that we have to realize that we have to maintain our inner stability so that we can respond wisely to whatever, whatever challenges the world brings to us. So equanimity is an important state of mind. It's not an uncaring, unfeeling state of mind. It's simply a very stable state of mind that allows us to act wisely. So those are some of my thoughts on the topic.